Recently released Q3 numbers show that investment volumes are still dropping across all property types. But with inflation leveling out, CBRE recently predicted the Federal Reserve may begin cutting interest rates as soon as March of 24, which could drive investment activity recovery by mid-24. Go to junipersquare.com forward slash state of real estate, all one word, to learn more about these and other CRE market trends, including why the U.S. market still strongly appeals to international investors and the boom in private credit. Again, that's junipersquare.com forward slash state of real estate, all one word, to learn more. I'm Brandon Sedloff, Managing Director at Juniper Square, and you're listening to The Distribution by Juniper Square. Join us as we sit down with experts from commercial real estate, venture capital, and private equity to discuss trends in technology, fundraising, and private markets. We'll cover this and much more. On today's episode, I sit down with Andrew Holmberg, principal at Berkeley Partners, and we discuss why Andrew believes in avoiding locations that are overly correlated to housing, the importance of getting ESG reporting right, and how technology has created new and better ways to interact with investors. At Berkeley Partners, Andrew is responsible for acquisitions, portfolio management, investor relations, and overall strategy. Berkeley Partners and its affiliated entities comprise a fully integrated principal investment firm focused exclusively on light industrial real estate. With its national footprint, the company is one of the premier institutional industrial operators and fund managers. All righty. Well, Andrew, thanks for joining me today. I'm excited to uh, have this conversation. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. I always like to get started by asking guests to briefly introduce yourself. So if you can start with a brief introduction of your background and Berkeley Partners, that would be great. And let us know who you are and what you guys do. We are an industrial operator and fund manager, investing primarily in the light industrial sector across you know, a dozen or so major metros across the U.S. I've been with the firm for, gosh, coming on nine years now in really a variety of roles. I started off focused exclusively on investor relations and expanded into acquisitions, firm strategy, asset management. So really have, have touched all aspects of the company over the last eight or nine years or so. And for our listeners that aren't familiar, can you tell us a little bit about light industrial and the markets that you focus on in particular and why you chose those markets just so we can get oriented? Yeah, we're buying, you know, we're buying smaller unit inside the Beltway Industrial, so call it five to 150,000 square foot unit sizes that serve really a variety of businesses that, you know, want to be closer to population centers. We're focused on, you know, the fastest growing major metros across the U.S. We're really like the... The demand trends in light industrial run counter to the to the supply story. So these are infill assets that are hard to replicate, where you have growing demand and a lot of barriers to new supply. So the markets we're focused on are markets like Boston, Philadelphia, Atlanta, Nashville. You know places with a variety of of demand for industrial space, where you, you're seeing supply fixed or, or in some cases actually declining. And why? What what drives the constraint around supply in some of these inside the Beltway markets, as you describe them? Why is there not more pro- proliferation of you know industrial supply there? It's really just all about replacement cost. So in a place like like Boston, 
you're competing against other uses, right? So good development sites are hard to come by. And if you find one, they're often used for, you know, life sciences or housing. A lot of these cities are, they're short residential housing and other commercial uses just drive a much higher rent level. And so it just doesn't make a whole lot of economic sense to build this product type. And in a lot of cases, you'll actually see older industrial getting acquired and scraped to build this, you know, higher and better use product. And that really creates a supply demand imbalance that is you're not not showing much signs of, of stopping, really, regardless of the economic backdrop. Got it. Okay. Well, that's super helpful. Thanks for that overview. We'll come back to some of the supply and demand drivers in a moment. But before we get too far into it, so you mentioned you know, you've been with Berkeley for about nine years. Can you give us a preview of what you were doing before you joined Berkeley Partners? And then you know, let's talk a little bit about the capitalization strategy of Berkeley Partners for all of our listeners. Yeah. So I started off in the secondaries business at Landmark Partners, really going through the, the recession. And then was with a couple GPs of Longworth Capital and the Davis companies in investor relations focused roles, you know, before joining Berkeley in, in 2014. So I've really done done a, a few different things. I was in Boston with those firms, then in San Francisco with Berkeley, and now we're you know running our office in Dallas. Excellent. And so Berkeley Partners, what what is the capitalization strategy? What is the kind of structure of the different investment vehicles that you invest out of? And talk a little bit about kind of you know where you sit in terms of you know core value add opportunistic, you know, what kind of risk you're willing to take on and you know the duration of your your investments. Yeah, so we're we we've done a series of value add funds. You know, we're on our fifth value add fund that's a four hundred million dollar commingled you know, investment vehicle. We we also have a separate account focused on Core Plus with a major, you know, state pension plan. And those are really our two vehicles. You know, we're exclusively focused on this property type. This is all we do. We've got offices in San Francisco, Dallas and Boston, and then a few other regional offices across the country, you know, investing those two buckets of capital. Got it. And so you're investing out of, you know, primarily out of funds. Sounds like the focus is value add. In terms of you know your investor composition, how should we think about the types of investors and LPs that you work with in, in, as part of the commingled discretionary fund strategy? Yeah, I mean we we broaden the base over time, but it's really a lot of like the big state pension funds. But we've been able over time to add some corporate plans, a few insurance companies, some endowments and foundations. But investors often looked at us and said, "Okay, like we're going to do Prologis or we're going to do Exeter." And we want to pair that exposure. And so, I mean, we've been doing lead industrial since really before it was, it was as popular as it is now. And the early investors, that's really how they looked at it. They said, we've already got our bigger box exposure and we're going to add Berkeley to really provide that, you know, more infill, you know, industrial exposure to our portfolio. And, you know, but we broadened it out over time. I think, I think we now see a pretty diversified mix of investors, you know, looking at our funds. And when you think about kind of the envelope, if you will, that you operate from within, are you vertically integrated? How do you, what do you do for your asset management, you know, lease up, et cetera? Yeah, we're fully vertically integrated. So, and and when I say that, a lot of people have different definitions of what vertically integrated actually means, but we do our own property management, you know, our own asset management, some of our own construction. 
And then when it comes to leasing, it's really like a best fit model. So in some cases, we'll actually lease units ourselves. In a lot of cases, we'll use sort of the best brokers in the market. Construction, we do some in-house. Um, and in some cases, we'll partner with, you know, third-party JV partners for more complicated, you know, development and repositioning projects. Great. Well, thanks for that overview. Let's talk a little bit about the current, you know, market fundamentals. And, you know, I know you mentioned you were at Landmark through the last recession. So, you know, your career span, the early 2000s and, you know, what is referred to as the Great Recession, you know, we're now in, you know, really interesting and uncertain, you know, in economic and global macro environment. To the extent that there's lessons that you learn through the last downturns, you know, what are those lessons, you know, maybe kind of some of the war stories, if you will, and then, you know, what advice or how are you heeding that, those lessons and kind of leveraging your experience moving forward into this current period of relative economic and global uncertainty and instability? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think the biggest lesson you know, I learned coming out of 2006, 2007 was really like, you know, watching some of the other, you know, industrial groups go through that time. And I think most notably was just like watching how Cal West played out, you know, and a few other industrial groups that went, went through that. And I think what you learn is that like these properties are relatively insulated from a lot of the economic trends. I think even Cal West, I think the NOI was down 10% peak to trough through the 07-08 downturn. Can you explain the CalWest situation for those of us that aren't familiar? This was a portfolio of, of high quality infill industrial national portfolio built by an operator with a you know, major pension system. It was sold to private equity and, and levered up you know, substantially and then ultimately got transitioned to different ownership you know, through the debt in 07-08. And really like what I learned from that is you know, these types of assets, like it doesn't require a lot of capital to run the buildings, right? They're relatively low TIs. You know, the NOIs will decline, but it's not as big of an issue as other property types. You know, maybe you're down 5 or 10%, but you can backfill the spaces. The demand is there. You tend to have vacancy rates that stay in that sort of 5 to 10%-ish range, even in, in tougher times, but you've really got to watch your leverage. And I think the thing that we did that I think is actually a little bit different than some of the other groups over the last few years is we really stuck to property by property leverage. You know, we'd finance this stuff with local banks. We'd make sure they, the covenants were relatively light. And really, you, know, you, you were often paying a bit more for that. I mean, some of the banks over the last couple of years, I mean, they would lend down to, you know, 2 to 3% money. If you went, you know, for more aggressive portfolio financing, but those were often floating rate loans, you know, covenants, you know, a bunch of structure around that stuff. And we generally stayed away from that. We generally did fixed rate, you know, one off deal by deal, tried to minimize that risk. I think that's, you know, one, you know, lesson that, you know, we really learned. And then I think the thing about this cycle that I think was a little bit different than 06, 07 was just the amount of capital that came flooding into industrial, particularly through COVID, and just making sure we were disciplined on like underwriting that yield on cost to get to at least, you know, 6% plus. I mean, some of these deals, you know, you really had like a one-year window last year where stuff was getting price stabilized right around a five, very aggressive debt rapid rent growth assumptions. 
you know, I think I think just trying to stay away from some of that stuff where you had to buy it in a bidding war, you know, was important as well. What did your, out of curiosity, what did your kind of acquisition or disposition strategy look like over the last, you know, call it 24 months when we, you know, from effectively the start through, you know, the end of COVID, if you will? I mean, we were looking for liquidity as much as we could. I mean, we we liquidated all of our fund four, which you know, we did that through a few one-off sales as well as you know one portfolio transaction. You know, with our fund five, we were a little earlier in the process there, so we sold a couple things and hit the returns, which. You know, we're obviously strong, but we were, you know, we were halfway through our investment period. So we sold a couple buildings that were some of the earlier acquisition when we were just getting the fund going, but we're still fairly early. But I think it was a good time to look for liquidity. And then we were also positioning the portfolio more towards what we consider like infill coastal market locations, just because we looked at it and said, like, well, as long as I can continue to push rent through good times and bad, you know, I I'm a believer in these types of buildings and the supply demand story that we talked about at the beginning of the of the show. And so I think we tried to position to actually more defendable locations, even if that meant, you know, price per pound was a little bit higher or whatever it might be. We positioned more to like a, a coastal market like a Boston, where we believed you could push rents really regardless of the economic backdrop, just because of the supply demand and went much deeper there than let's say some of the more outer suburban locations and some of the growth cities where you know you've done well in all those areas those are great growing markets but we just felt like on a risk adjusted basis you were actually even better off like going deep or coastal you know when the market got really aggressive that makes sense so it sounds like you know coming out of the global financial crisis, you know, one of the lessons learned was, or one of the takeaways was to, you know, focus on financing on an asset by asset basis. Are there additional kind of lessons that you learned or key takeaways from prior downturns that you're applying to the current environment? I think that's the big one. I mean, also, you know, have plenty of reserves, you know, make sure you're managing the fund from a portfolio management perspective appropriately. So, you know, you're re-underwriting, making sure you've got reserves to deal with a tenant move out or, you know, a refinancing event, you know, never sort of get stuck having to go back from rescue capital. I think that was a big lesson from 0708. And then, you know, I think conservative financing and making sure you have banks that you can pick up the phone and call them and work with them. And, you know, I think, I think those are really the two, two key lessons. As you think about the market now, you know, one of the things you mentioned is there was a ton of capital that poured into industrial during COVID, but there's also kind of more capital in the system, I think, than we've seen at any point in prior history. How do you think about kind of the, you know, the next 12 to 18 months in terms of, you know, opportunities for the sector, you know, through the lens of what Berkeley Partners is focused on? Yeah, I think I think industrial is going through some permanent shifts. I don't think, well, I think that you can take lessons away from 0708 when it comes to financing and how you do portfolio management and reserves and all of that. But I don't think industrial looks the same as it did as it did then. I think that we've seen more capital coming into the asset class. I think as you continue to see technology become an issue for things like office, 
industrial continues to be a beneficiary of that, whether that's e-commerce or really even other types of uses that are coming in and driving demand for industrial space. And capital is also looking for industrial because it's more stable. It doesn't have some of the digital disruption that retail had first and office is having now. So I do think industrial is permanently in a different place than where it was. I think the big shift we've seen in the last year or two is you know just the change in interest rates so far. So you know you you rewound, you know you could finance portfolios of industrial at you know let's say 2 to 3% that was driving cap rates down, you know the rent growth was strong, you had Amazon growing their portfolio rapidly. You know, you fast forward to today, the two big changes are one, like the interest rates are completely different from where they were. You know, single asset financings are now 6% plus, which is a, a dramatic change, you know, for the asset class. And then, you know, secondarily, the big tenants in the market have slowed down a lot, right? The, the headline tenants like FedEx or Amazon have slowed down their take up. You know, generally, the smaller regional companies, the guys we're leasing to, are still, you know, leasing space. The vacancy rates are below 2%. We're still pushing rents aggressively, I think, across the portfolio. But valuations have to get reset because you're now, you know, just in a much different, you know, financing environment. So I think you're seeing, you know, if cap rates were four, you know, they're now called mid-fives going in. That's how big of a shift you've seen from interest rates. And instead of stabilizing, you know, low to mid fives, you're stabilizing, you know, six and a half to seven, you know, that feels like some pretty good opportunity, in my opinion. And I think you just have to be, if you can pick the areas where you think the demand is resilient, because I think first you get the change in interest rates, and then most people would expect second, you'll get some fall off in fundamentals as, you know, we get a slowdown in economic activity and you get some you know, form of recession, I think it's a big question mark how deep that recession really is. But I think I think that as long as you're picking locations where you have sub 2% vacancy and the tenants have very little options, so you have really almost monopolistic pricing power, you know, this change in cap rates feels like an opportunity. I think you just have to be very selective and make sure you pick the right locations and the right the right properties. And so for you, just to reiterate, the markets that you're principally focused are are coastal gateway markets, which include what? Boston, you mentioned. What are some of the other key markets? Yeah, I mean, we're sort of, if you think of, we're like, the, we're just a very large smile, right? So we're, we're San Francisco, Phoenix, down through Texas, Nashville, Atlanta. We've got a little bit of South Florida, DC and Boston. And those markets all have, economic growth, but they also have, at least in the locations we're targeting, supply barriers. I think in our opinion, some of the growth markets, particularly with the COVID story, it was all about, you know, people move into the Sun Belt. And that was all true. But I think that that also led to very aggressive pricing. And that pushed us over the last couple of years to focus more on markets like the Bay Area in Boston, where, you know, supply demand for industrial is is very much in the landlord's favor. I think now with the pricing disruption and the fact that the yields have really shifted, you know, we're looking at all those markets again. And 
you know, we did a little bit in Texas over the last few years. I think we're looking a lot more here um, now that those cap rates are up, you know, 100, 150 you know, basis points. And are there specific macroeconomic indicators that you look for to kind of give you a sign or a signal on the health of, you know, your your tenants, you know, market, if you will? I, I know you mentioned previously, you know, if you can get monopolistic pricing and you can operate in markets where there's not a lot of other options, you know, you feel pretty confident in your ability to lease up these assets. But are there anything that you kind of keep a close eye on from a macro perspective that will lead you to believe that, you know, things are going to get materially better, materially worse? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're, I mean, we're, we're tracking, we're looking at all the major high level economic indicators. So, you know, GDP per capita, population growth, you know, individual household income, et cetera. I think the big thing is pairing that with forms of, of supply constraints. So density, so we'll look at like construction that's happening around the property. You know, we'll look at industrial supply per person. You know, we're looking for areas where you're permanently going to be undersupplied for industrial and really focusing on those locations. I think the thing that I'd be the most concerned about today is really housing. And so I think like, I think in the short term, as long as the Fed is raising rates and making mortgage rates and placing mortgage rates at a place where it's almost impossible for people to justify selling their old home and moving into a new house, you know, housing is going to be under pressure. And I think you want to avoid locations that are overly correlated to the housing market. I think that's the biggest thing we're, we're watching today and really focusing on areas where you've got a diversity of, of demand drivers and really demand that's going to be secular and not cyclical. So I'll, I'll give you one example. So I've talked about the fact that we've like, we bought a lot of product in Boston and we like that market. We can talk more about that. But we, we just bought a three building portfolio in Phoenix. And historically, you'd say, okay, well, Phoenix, that's cyclical, that's housing, et cetera. But you know, two of those buildings were right on Intel's campus in Chandler. They're going to put $30 billion into building a new fab that they're partnering on with Brookfield. These are two standalone 30,000 square foot higher power, good clear height buildings, you know, sitting right up against one of the country's biggest infrastructure projects. That demand that that's going to drive, you know, you've got Chandler's also a rooftop driven area. You've got high end retail, you've got a lot of houses, you know, that demand for that space isn't going to change if the housing market goes down 15 or 20%. That project is going forward. It's going to drive a lot of demand from service providers that want to be close to to Intel's big project. And then the other building was right next to Sky Harbor, the airport, you know, 30,000 square foot, 24 clear building, you know, right near Sky Harbor. You know, you're never going to replicate that product type. That whole area is just becoming more infill. You've got the airport that's going to drive demand. I think that's what we're really looking for, where, you know, where the demand for the space really doesn't have a whole lot to do with you know, is housing going down, going down, or are we going to recession? These are really, you know, secular drivers of, of long-term demand. And I think if you find that, you should be willing to make that bet, you know, across market cycles. 
Yeah, that makes sense. I appreciate you know the example. I think you know Arizona is a market that I think is often you know misunderstood. So it's interesting to hear kind of how your strategy dovetails with kind of broader macro growth drivers in the market as well. So appreciate the the context there. Let's change gears a little bit. You and I first got to know each other, you know, when we were talking about kind of some of the evolving needs of investors and what that means from an investor relations perspective. Because as you mentioned, you started your time at Berkeley focused mostly on investor relations. Can you talk to me a little bit about kind of what's your take on how investors' demands have evolved over your career and, you know, anything in particular that you've noticed that's different about, you know, this cycle than prior cycles from a LP or an investor demand perspective? Yeah, when you say demand, you mean product demand or demand for things like investor services and transparency and things of, things like that. Let's talk about both. So, you know, let's finish the economic conversation with product demand since, you know, you've got product that's historically been in demand. And then let's move over to demand in the sense of what they're requiring and what their expectations are from a reporting and a servicing perspective. Yeah, on the on the first side, I mean, investors, I think, continue to look for specialized focused groups that have differentiation in deal sourcing and execution. So, I mean, I, I, you know, we all know we're, we're in a much tougher time than we were in a year ago, right? The stock market's been down. You know, there's going to be distress in commercial real estate. You know, I think investors that we talk to, I mean, they're obviously looking for a way to take advantage of that. But they're also looking to to partner with smaller groups like us that are focused on a niche like industrial that they think is a, that where they have a hole in their portfolio and they think that there's going to be long term opportunity. So we continue to see pretty good demand for for what we do in the investor world, um, and just the size of the funds we're raising. You know, our last fund was four hundred million. You know, maybe the next one's five hundred. They're still relatively small. So it doesn't feel like for what we do, we're seeing much of a pullback from investors. They do feel very cautious. They're obviously looking for ways to take advantage of the disruption in the market. But they it feels like for the right niche strategies, they're continuing to to make commitments. That feels pretty different from 0708, where everybody just effectively froze, you know, for a couple of years dealing with issues. But I'd be I'd welcome, you know, your thoughts on that topic. And then... Well, just, 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 just before we move on, I mean, I think, I think it's interesting because one of the things that, you know, the headlines are always referring to and that we hear from our customers that are in the market raising funds is some of the larger state pension funds in particular, you know, are, are obviously being impacted by the denominator effect where, you know, their, you know, their private equity and venture capital portfolios you know, and public public market portfolios were sky high and then all came crashing down. And, you know, just the need to kind of rebalance everything has put a pause on, you know, the velocity of investing activity. So it sounds like, you know, either because you're not actively fundraising or because, you know, you're working with a, you know, smaller, you know, relatively smaller fund size and different composition of investor, the denominator effect hasn't had a material impact on your current business activities. Is that a fair assessment or are you also hearing about the portfolio rebalancing that's going on? Yeah, no, you're probably right. We're not actively fundraising. I'm probably just um, overly optimistic, I suppose, too. That you know, get, keeps you, gets you up in the morning and you know, keeps you working. But, you know, it, 
like when, I think you're I think you're right. I mean, we're not actively fundraising the market today, so we're not hearing those discussions directly. We've got a small investor base that we talk to, you know, and, and amongst our existing investors, you know, they all feel like they've got room to continue, you know, expanding their industrial portfolio and are looking for, you know, they're lo- they all seem to be looking for more industrial. I think you're right about the backdrop. It'll be interesting to see when we actually get out there and start fundraising. But so far, the discussions around, you know, continuing to make investments has, has been fairly positive. That's great. Well, I think, you know, industrial is an interesting space, as you know, you don't need me to tell you, and you and I have discussed this in the past, but it went from being a relatively obscure, very niche, very alternative asset class, what, half a decade ago, maybe a decade ago, to what most would consider mainstream today. And you have your very large operators, some of whom you've referenced already. And then you have really, really teeny tiny operators that you know, have a great portfolio, but they don't have any institutional pedigree. Their, you know, reporting and systems may not be up to standard. And so, you know, Berkeley Partners and some of your peers fill a really important void where, you know, you can be that institutional quality partner and safe, if you will, for institutional LPs and get them access to an asset class that maybe they could only get access to through the public markets or through very large investment managers who are, you know, maybe more diversified or just operating at a different scale. So I think it's an interesting area that you all play in. I think that's 100% right. I think that's probably more what's going on. Because you think about industrial, like if you're not investing with the big guys, there's probably really only a handful of groups that are actually raising funds. I mean, that's pretty different from multifamily, where I mean, how many there how many value add multifamily groups are there maybe 15 or 20, if not more? You know, industrial is probably half that. Yeah, it's just relatively newer as a mainstream asset class. So let's talk about investor demand. So, you know, we talk about reporting, we talk about transparency, we talk about accessibility. Kind of what's your take as a, you know, someone who's been rooted in investor relations throughout your career? Like, what's your take on how that's evolved? And then, you know, let's talk a little bit about what Berkeley Partners' approach to client service and investor reporting is for your for your LPs. Yeah, I mean, I think as we all know, the demands are growing. I think the biggest shift we've been seeing over the last like year or two is really around ESG, just continuing to figure out really how you track and report on that. And I think investors are really focused on that and want to understand how you're meeting not just environmental, um, you know, but also things like governance and diversity of the team and all of that. I think those are, I think those are the biggest shifts we've really seen in the last couple of years. We are pushing hard to meet all those demands. It isn't easy to track all of the environmental items. You know, when you get into things like industrial, you're tracking, you know, water usage and energy usage, but it's it's important. And I think the investors you know, want to see it and at least want to see that you're, you're, you know, trying to report on it. I think otherwise, you know, we saw a big shift over the last five years that really you guys were at the forefront of just providing, you know, better documentation, better reporting, more transparency. I think that played out over probably the last five or six years. We've, it feels like we've got a pretty good handle on that at this point from an organizational standpoint. You know, now we've seen a much bigger push on the ESG side. 
don't know. Is that, is, is that consistent with what you've been seeing or how have you been seeing it play out? Yeah, no, I, I think that's very consistent. I mean, over the last, you know, five, six years, there's been a you know significant push to close kind of what we call the you know the transparency gap and transparency can you know some people think it's a bad word but i think you know by and large most people accept that you know in order to be a good fiduciary you need to be prepared to share kind of a minimum level of information with your with your investors and so you know whereas in 2014 15 16 you know very few people had investor portals that allowed their investors to contextualize the investment. Today, if you don't have that, then you're actually kind of have fallen behind versus at the bleeding edge. And, you know, very similar to the feedback that you just provided, we're seeing a really substantial push around, you know, ESG, specifically from European investors and some state pension funds who have made commitments to, you know, minimum requirements over the next, you know, two or three decades. And so a lot of people are trying to figure that out. And it feels a lot like 2014, 15, 16 from a quote unquote investor, you know, performance reporting perspective, which is obviously the space that we play. So, you know, I, I think the market would largely agree with your sense, your perspective. How do you, just out of curiosity, like, how do you think about closing the gap between where you are, or maybe there isn't a gap, but how do you think about evolving your ESG reporting specifically on environmental? Are there there different tools that you use or, you know, key people that you've hired? Or how do you think about that inside of Berkeley Partners? Well, we're, we're pushing on it hard right now. I mean, I think that is the biggest challenge for smaller firms just because of, you know, resource and time focus. But it's very important. So, yeah, I think there are various third parties, but it's really about you know actually tracking the activity at the individual buildings. So, you know, putting on solar where you can, tracking power usage, water, you know, doing LED lighting upgrades, right? Those are the types of things, and then really just tracking and reporting on it on a regular basis. But it feels like it's becoming an essential. Maybe it's only some investors that are asking for it at this point, but it feels like for the next few years, it's going to become a must-do. And what is your general approach, right? I mean, you know, a lot of people say, well, you know, investors are asking me about it, but they're not requiring it, so I'm not going to touch it. And others are saying investors are asking about it, and so I'm going to use that as an opportunity to start to develop, you know, a methodology and a skill set around it because I want to do it whether they require it or not. Where do you kind of fall on that spectrum? Or maybe it's, you know, somewhere that I didn't mention on the on the spectrum. Well, yeah. I mean, fortunately for us, like some of our big investors do require it. So then you basically do it for, for everybody. So I think we're being forced. Well, forced isn't the right word. We are, you know, we, some of our bigger clients we have to do it for them and that's where that's pushing it all the way down the organization but it's the right thing to do i think you just work with the right third parties so i think what what we're doing is you know every building you're going to do led lights if, as long as it makes economic sense right you're going to do solar you know on the roofs where appropriate you're going to do tracking of power and water right there's various third parties that'll actually go through your entire portfolio and set all of that up and then you're going to report that as frequently as you practically can, hopefully quarterly, you know, if not semi-annually to your investors and then, you know, track it over time. I think that's really what you can do. And then obviously on, you know, governance, there's a number of things you can do as well. So 
I think that's what we're doing today. We'll see, you know, uh, you know, if it's enough. Yeah. I mean, look, I think all the conversations that I have with many of your peers are largely the same. I mean, it feels a lot like when we started, you know, Juniper Square and got into the market, there's a high degree of interest in collaborating and evolving and, you know, varying levels of both sophistication and, you know, tooling to help support that, right? I always talk about, you know, is it skill or is it will? And, you know, it sounds like you have the will to do it and you're developing, or not even you, but the market is developing skills around how to be you know, how to how to keep up with the evolving needs of your investors, starting with, you know, financial and performance reporting and now evolving over to ESG reporting and, you know, who knows what might be next. But I think it's just important to realize that these are iterative processes and, you know, the way to make progress and what we saw in the financial reporting side is it needs to be collaborative. It can't just be GPs doing it because their LPs are requiring it without partnership, the LP needs to come to the table as a solid partner. The GP needs to be open to evolving. We need to understand the risks and the rewards on both sides. And then we need to develop kind of the ecosystem and the muscle in order to facilitate this type of, this type of work. Yeah. Do you, do you think there'll be like other emerging investor trends that we haven't thought about? Like, like for example, like we have a few construction projects that, you can actually 24-7 go on the cameras and see the progress on those buildings. And obviously, we all have access, but our investors don't. Do you think there'll be things like that where you know your investor portal could do like a 3D walkthrough of, of, your, of the buildings or something along those lines that even could, could get the investors even more connected to, to what their GPs are doing on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a great point. I think, you know, what we've heard from groups that we we speak to are, you know, number one is the technology has evolved. COVID really drove this rapid acceleration of technology that enabled, you know, better visibility into the asset, the asset level performance, you know, the, the physical envelope of the building. And so now that we have tools that allow you to do virtual lease-ups, virtual walkthroughs, you know, people had assets that were fully permitted during the pandemic where nobody visited them, then this, the second end of that equation is how do you take those tools and that technology and pair it, you know, with the user experience that makes it easy for investors to consume. And so, you know, in the Juniper Square portal, for example, you know, we have the ability to support high res, you know, photos and videos, which helps when you're thinking about quote unquote contextualizing the performance of the investment, because now when you're marketing a new fund or you're acquiring a new asset, the ability to kind of plug in some videos to start with is a nice kind of easy entree for investors to be able to understand because the reality is there's still a gap. There's tools that you use to run your business better and business more efficiently and make better investment decisions. And then there's investor behavior. And that's still evolving because the reality is, as you know, many of these large state pension funds and others are are really kind of staffed quite leanly. And so the ability to both utilize the technology and to consume and kind of internalize the benefits is something that I think the market still needs to take up. So, you know, we saw this with hybrid annual meetings. It used to be only in person and then it was virtual and now it's a combination of both. But, you know, the main trend that we're seeing, you know, specifically around these new evolutions 
is how do you think about running your business more efficiently, right? It's all about, it's all about efficiency. And, and, you know, obviously, you know, one way to do that is around, you know, outsourcing of, you know, different tasks, whether it be your fund accounting and administration or, you know, different tasks that, you know, firms might do in-house today. And then augmenting that with technology to allow the people that you have the ability to do more. So, you know, I think it's a really interesting space and, not long ago, it used to be real estate and technology. And the reality is today it's real estate. And in order to be in real estate, you have to utilize technology across all different facets of your business. Yeah, com- completely great. It's been really great having this conversation. Before we let you go, I like to ask everybody to share kind of one prognostication, if you will, about what you think the next you know, 12 months will hold. So if you have to look into your crystal ball, what do you kind of what do you think the next 12 months will bring for the market? I think this is going to be a stop start next 12 months. So I think everything will effectively, if you cut off all the credit to the economy, we will have effectively a stop. But I think people will be surprised at how quickly, once you get enough of like a turn from the Fed and inflation feels like it's under control, I think we will be surprised I think we'll be surprised at how quickly we come to a stop and how quickly we then start back up again. And I think that's going to make it, you know, very interesting, you know, next 12 months. Let's hope the start comes very quickly after the stop. And uh, it's a short little, it's a short little stop. So anyway, Andrew, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been great chatting with you. And as always, appreciate your time and insights. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of The Distribution by Juniper Square. Subscribe and rate The Distribution on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. See you next time.